And thanks again for the worship team. You guys just really do a wonderful job leading us. Thank you so much for that, Dana and Ed and, and Kendra. Thanks for the work you guys put in. I do have a couple of announcements to make before we get started and look into uh, God's Word this morning. Um, <clears throat> most of you know that this afternoon is uh, Bill Negreen's Celebration of Life Service. It will be at the Alliance Church in the gym, not in the sanctuary, but in the gymnasium. And uh, you're, everyone is welcome to attend, just to uh, be with uh, Connie and her family and, and uh, just pay tribute and, to um, Bill's life among us as well as uh, glorify God. And I think Ronnie needs some volunteers, if I'm, if I'm correct, uh, to help her carry some food over there. Uh, do I have any volunteers? She asked if we could just get a raise of hand, just kind of get an idea of anybody who's willing to help with that. Thanks. Oh, great. I'm writing your names down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing that. I appreciate it. Uh, also, um, Don is not here. Oh, Ronnie? 12, oh, so yeah, yeah, 12.15 here, yeah, to carry the food over. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, also, uh, Don Griffin is not here with us this morning. Uh, the kids are with, with Amber. Um, just he asked me to give a quick report. Uh, he's, he was diagnosed with a, with a rare form of neuropathy. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, it's, uh, it's one that eats away at the, the covering of the nerves, and he's starting to get some paralysis in his legs and his arms, and it's, um, he's under some treatment. Uh, the best-case scenario is that the nerves repair themselves, and uh, uh, one of the worst-case scenarios is that it, that it stops, but he's still, you know, he's still mobile. He's, he just has this tingling and stuff. So he did ask for us to pray for him, and he's, he had to go through... I think four infusions straight this week, and it kind of left him uh, kind of devastated a little bit with headaches and exhaustion. He said it feels like a severe flu is what it feels like. Uh, but he should be back, and then he goes for infusions once a week after that, and I can't remember how long that lasts, but this last week was the big one. This last week was the real tough one. So he went through some infusions, and so that's the reason he's not here today. And uh, if you can remember to pray for Don, yeah, that... Uh, as you know, working with kids requires a lot of energy, and uh, he, he will be he's missed this week, and we just need to keep him up and keep him strong. So let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your goodness as we move toward Easter and we move toward Lent and, and recognize uh, just uh, what you've done for us and what it means to us and how you've reconciled us to yourself. We, uh, we pray for... Uh, our, uh, our sick world with um, genocide and, and wars that seems like to be breaking out all over the place. And we pray for peace, that, uh, that you act and that people will begin to act like the human beings that we, you created us to be. And Father, you also know about all the, the uh, illness that we have in this church, that people are, are suffering with some um, severe problems. And we pray for Don. Uh, we just and we pray for so many of the other families that we know that um, are dealing with cancer and dealing with uh, the setbacks that that has to do with and and exhaustion and so Father we're just we want to put them in your hands and we know that's a safe place for them and uh, we join together in expectancy of healing and uh, and recovery and that, of restoration and so Father we ask if we look into your word that you give us clarity of thought and. 
and uh, just hear what you have for us this morning in Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, one of, I went through a lot of youth meetings when I was a kid. I mean, we were one of those families when the church doors opened, we were there. And I went through a lot of youth meetings, youth ministry meetings, and there's one that I remember in particular, uh, and that's when we got together. I was, I was in eighth grade, junior high, and we were all in this room, and the youth leaders played um, a lot of the soundtrack from the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. And uh, it's weird that that's the one I remember, because I look back and there's not a lot of them I remember, but I remember that one. I think maybe because I was so bored during it. I mean, I was a squirrely eighth grader, and, uh, and that's what they did. They, they played the, some music, and then they had these questions and stuff, and, and I'm thinking either they thought that we were smarter than we really were, or uh, they came and they weren't prepared, and they said, well, let's just play the soundtrack to Jesus Christ Superstar. And so we listened to that, and and um, I've listened to other songs from it since then. And then I think during the, co during the, the, the pandemic, they were doing some, some, some filming of musicals. I think they did The Wizard of Oz, and one of them was Jesus Christ Superstar. And we watched it with John Legend and, and Sarah Bareilles. And I watched it for her. I'm a big fan of hers. Uh, and, and when I think about it, I think about some of the questions. I just thought it was boring, and I thought it was kind of well a little bit over my head in middle school. But then I listened to it again, and I thought, the questions are really pretty good that we were asked, and that we asked, and that the musical asked. And I know a lot of Christians thought it was blasphemous or cynical or it caused too many doubts, and that's probably all true. But I do think it raised some questions that we need to ask ourselves. And uh, that is, the questions they were asking is, who are you, Jesus? Can you tell us who you are? And the other question is, are you who those people say you are? Do you believe that you're the person they say you are? And those are kind of, kind of over-the-head questions, I think, for eighth graders, myself. But I think as adults, those are very good questions to ask. Uh, because if we don't ask those questions, and if we don't come to some conclusions about that, or what it is, well, his presence in, in our lives has the potential to just, you know, just turning into vapor of irrelevancy or floating away as in some fantasy. And if we can't answer those questions, how do we expect others to be interested in who Jesus is? And one of the things Howard Hendricks used to tell us in seminary was you're not here to fill your heads full of knowledge, fill your heads full of answers. You're here so that you can learn how to ask the right questions. And then we want to give you the tools to go look for those uh, answers to those questions. So that was really the purpose, and I really believe that if we don't ask that question ourselves and really understand and come to terms of who this person is, then we really are not, that we can't really expect other people to, to um, be interested, to take notice of Jesus. Um, is, is the presence of Jesus in my life, is, is it both disturbing and comforting? Is, is it uh, confrontational? Is he, is he confronting me, but also is he comforting me? Is he just a figment of my imagination? What is this? And we complain about the society reducing Jesus down to like just a teacher, a, a religious teacher or a philosopher. But in some ways, I think as Christians, we kind of have reduced him enough as it is. We don't need society to reduce him for us. Uh, we reduced them to, to, to maybe just the, the kingdom of God. It's just this personal piety that I have to keep. Or maybe it's to heal my conscience that, you know, maybe, you know, so I don't have this guilty conscience of what, what he did on the cross. Or it's really uh, just about Easter. It's just about my ultimate eternal happiness. Now, 
Having said that, our conscience, our piety, and our eternal life is important. But it's not as important as the person of Jesus himself, of what he does, and he is the king. He is the Lord of all. He is the ruler of earth, of heaven and earth. And I think part of the problem is that we have come accustomed to our earthly kings and we're okay with ordinary, shabby, sort of second-rate kings. And so when we talk about Jesus as king, does he really rule the world? And really, do we want him to rule the world? If that's our idea of what a king is like, something like that. Um, I think we need to get Jesus right. We need to get the person right if we want to expect other people to take notice of him. In, in Matthew and Luke, they record Jesus talking about the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says, beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisee and the Sadducees. And then Luke goes ahead and defines that, that leaven as hypocrisy. This religious hypocrisy of of being on the facade of we're all righteous and everything, but then kind of working around the law to get what we want. Mark, on the other hand, he says, he, in Mark chapter 8, if, oh, i got to turn it on, don't I? There we go. I think we need to go back here. It's not moving. Can we go to the next slide? Okay. Oh, but I may, may have to tell you this. Kevin, I don't know if it's working or not. So anyway, Mark, in Mark chapter 8, he says, and Jesus, Jesus ordered them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, why did he say Herod and not Sadducees? This is really unique to Mark. And there's been lots of, com- lots of conversations and conflict about what exactly is the leaven of Herod. Well, in Mark chapter 6, he shows us exactly what he's talking about, the leaven, the leaven, the yeast of Herod. And it's this thirst for power. Oh, Ah, that's the problem. There's a, there's a stick that goes in here that has to go in there to, to, so, it, so it talks to each other. <laughs> Leave it to the experts to figure that out. We'll see if that works. So anyway, getting back to the story. Mark chapter 6, we left last, last week. Jesus had just sent out his disciples, and uh, he had commissioned them uh, to, to extend his ministry and also to train them. And then all of a sudden, we, he sends these people out, and people start talking about who this Jesus is. And the word gets back to Herod, Antipas. And then Mark abruptly jumps in to the execution of John the Baptist. And it feels really abrupt, but when you put it in context, we understand exactly what Mark is getting at. What is the leaven of the Herod? What exactly is that? It is this thirst for power. It is this thirst for power, and he chooses that instead of a sacrifice. It chooses, he chooses a sword instead of a cross. He, he has this impulse of glorifying himself. And so we have this really weird intrusion of this, this story, but in my opinion, it, it's to, to lay out exactly the stark contrast to what a real king anointed by God looks like 
and what Herod looks like. So we get back into the story, and Herod hears, Herod Antipas hears this business about John the Baptist and about Jesus, about what's going on. And they're talking about who tells him, what do these people say about Jesus? Who is he? What is he? Does he, does he really what he says he is? And they say, well, there's one of three things. He's either Elijah, who's been resurrected, which means if that's Elijah, that means God's judgment's coming. Or he could just be another prophet, just one of the, one of the many prophets. It could be meaning that God's doing something new. Or he could be John the Baptist resurrected. And that's the worst-case scenario for Antipas. It could be meaning that the, John the Baptist literally was resurrected. People believed in the resurrection of the body, and a lot of the Jews did. Or it could be that maybe just Jesus took on the mantle of John the Baptist, and he's continuing on with his ministry. Either way, it's the worst-case scenario for Antipas. Why? Because he already took care of John the Baptist. That's already taken care of, and he's thinking, here we go again. Because if that's the case, then that means Herod's power is no power at all. He's impotent. He has no power. His power, symbolizing by the capital punishment, the execution, doesn't mean a thing. And so for, for Herod, this is the worst-case scenario. Josephus talks about this very episode, and he talks about how political it is, that it's very, very high political, that, that Antipas wants to get rid of John the Baptist. Some people even say that maybe he, took the, he put him in prison to protect him from his wife. But anyway, the way we know is that he, it is a very political story. Because Antipas had married another princess before this. And now he's went married to someone else who cannot stand John the Baptist. And Mark's version fits in very well with what Josephus writes about. So then we get to thrive this party, Herod's dinner party, and his complicated love life. And it's really complicated. For history, people have been married, and even in Western Europe, people marry, dynasties marry to consolidate power. Well, that's what happened with Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is one of the four sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the guy, the, the despicable Herod the Great, who killed all the babies when Jesus was born. Okay? He, had, he, has a, he divided his reign into four parts, and Herod Antipas got one part, the Galilee. And he married the princess, the daughter of this king, this Arab king, Aratus, to kind of consolidate because he was really powerful and Antipas was afraid of him. Well, then he has eyes for his brother's wife, Herodias. So he takes his brother's wife. He dismisses the princess. Big mistake because he gets wiped out later on. Okay. But now he's married to Herodias, his brother's wife, which makes it really complicated. And the thing is that Herod Antipas... He's called the king here in Mark, but in Matthew and Luke, he's called a tetrarch, which is what he is. There were four people divided in that king, that kingdom of Herod's, and he's a tetrarch, one of the four. In fact, he wanted, he wanted really badly to be king, and he kept talking to Caesar, saying, give me the title, give me the title, and Caesar never did. So Mark uses the word king, and I think in, back then, if they had air quotes, Mark would be using them. So he's Herod the king, Antipas. But he really isn't a king at all. He just wants to be. 
So he's married to Herodias, his brother's wife, and John says, you can't do that. You can't have your brother's wife while he's still alive. Because Herod and his family, they, they were king of the Jews, but they obeyed Jewish law when it was convenient. Well, this wasn't convenient for Herod, Antipas. And, G and John was saying, if you want to be king of the Jews, you've got to obey Jewish law. If you're not obeying Jewish law, you have no right to rule over the Jewish people. And that caused problems. So he had John the Baptist arrested. And Herodias, his wife, hates John the Baptist. Wants to get rid of him. Cannot stand him. Well, there came a party, Herod's birthday. And he has all the guests there. He's got, the, the, Mark says that he's got the guests from his, his court. He's got the political guests. He's got the guests from his army, the army generals. And he's got the guests from the, the elite of Galilee, the businessmen. So he's got it all covered, the economics, the military, and the politics. And they're all there at a party, and everybody's getting drunk. Everybody's in a half-drunken stupor. And Herodias sees her chance here. So her daughter goes out to dance for them, Salome. Josephus names her Salome. So she dances. And it really impresses the guests, and they're so thrilled with them. And Herod tries to show off, and, oh, I'm so great, and thank you for doing that. This is wonderful. You are so great. I would give you half of my kingdom. Whatever you ask, I'll give to you. So she goes back to her mom. Everybody know, most of us know the story, right? She goes back to her mom and says, what do I ask? And she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a plate. So she goes back and says, what do you want? Half my kingdom. Mark repeats the oath twice just so we get it, so we get the point, okay? He says, what do you want? Half my kingdom if you want it. He says, I want, she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And this bothered Antipas because, strangely enough, he kind of liked John the Baptist. He thought he was kind of cool. He thought he said some good things, and he liked listening to him. But rather than lose face, and rather than be embarrassed, and rather to think that he was a weak king, he sends the executioner, and they chop off John the Baptist's head. And she brings it to Herod. And she Herod brings it to her on a plate, and she brings it to her mom. So in, a, in an attempt to look strong and to look all great and glorious, he looks pathetic and weak. All those elite people in that room, all those powerful people, and John the Baptist's fate was determined by a dancing teenager. And he is weak and pathetic. That's a parody of what power looks like. That's a parody of what a king looks like. He gets the head, which is kind of a symbol of the honor, and he gets the head as sort of an exchange so that he can save face. I don't think you could have written a better character, a sarcastic character of a king. It's ridiculous. If it wasn't so sad and so macabre, it would be funny. But he is acting like a king. And it's just the same as we see all through Scripture. We have these proud, arrogant kings confronted by a truth-telling prophet. And many times it doesn't end so well for the prophet. But this paves the way. This story, to me, it, Mark is telegraphing 
the supreme parody of these kingships. And that's the, that's the sacrifice of Jesus. That just like John, Pontius Pilate sort of likes Jesus, sort of likes listening to him, but he caves to popular opinion and has him at crucified. John was rumored to be resurrected. Jesus was truly resurrected. So I think this story is sort of paving, us, paving the way for what's coming. Now, to understand the point of all this, I think we need to understand the other two stories that come immediately after. And we don't have time to delve into them. We're just going to look at them really quickly. But I think what this is, is the vision of the real king, the anointed king, Jesus the Messiah, looks very clear and is sharpened against this backdrop, this sordid backdrop of the execution of John the Baptist. We have an earthly king trying to save face, but looks weak and pathetic. And then we have the Messiah King, the Lord of heaven and earth. And I think Mark includes these stories to show us this contrast between these two. What does a real king look like? What does the anointed king look like? So right after the story, the disciples come along and, and, and Jesus and the disciples are going to try to debrief things and talk about their trip, talk about their mission trip. It's interesting that Mark now calls them apostles, not disciples. In other words, they are sent ones, not teachers, not, not apprentices, not students. And he's trying to get away with them, you know, and, and debrief some things and maybe talk about John the Baptist and his death and what this all means. And I think he may be telling them that, yes, this mission that you just inherited, you're also liable to inherit the destiny. That it may require this as well. And so they're trying to get away. They get into the boat and the crowd's coming and they want to get away from the crowd and they land on the other shore. And as soon as they land on the shore, the people have run and they're surrounded by this crowd of people. And this is the key, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's what a king looks like. That's what an anointed king looks like, a shepherd. That is an image that goes all the way through the Old Testament. When Moses is looking for a successor and is looking for Joshua, he says, I'm looking for a shepherd that will shepherd the sheep. When you look through the, the kings, and Micaiah, this prophet in, the, in 1 Kings, he says, the people of Israel is like sheep without a shepherd. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, they all talk about Israel being sheep without a shepherd. And when Jesus lands on the shore and sees the crowd, what does he say? They are sheep without a shepherd. He is the shepherd. This is what a king looks like. This is what the anointed looks like, like Jesus. And he, of course, we know the story. There was 5,000 men, probably 15 to 20,000 people. And he takes the bread and the fish and he feeds the whole crowd. And then he gets in the boat and the, disciple, or the disciples get in the boat and they fight another storm and Jesus walks on the water toward the boat and they're frightened. He gets in the boat and he says, oh, you have a little faith because... You, they didn't understand the bread. Now, I thought this was so weird. Now, why get in the boat? I mean, you just walked on water. You know, you just got in the boat, and their unbelief is about the bread that happened before? Why is that? Because they don't get who Jesus is. He is the anointed king. 
He doesn't just do magic to impress people. He's not trying to wow anybody. He's not trying to say, wow, this guy is, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of freaky. He does all these things. No, he is a shepherd taking care of sheep. They didn't understand the bread, that he is the one who protects in the storms. He feeds when they're hungry. He heals when they're sick. He gives us life. This is what the meaning of the bread means. Not some magic trick is that he has compassion. That's what Mark says. He had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. That's what the king looks like. Jesus is the shepherd from God of what it looks like. And you look at this compared to Herod's cowardice, and he stands out even, even starker. The vision is sharp. It's not just to prove that his message is, is valid. It's to prove that he is the God-anointed king who cares for the sheep. He is a prophet. He is a king. But he's also the very embodiment of the God of Israel. And this is huge. So compared to Jesus, who has compassion, who feeds, who heals, he touches, he, he calms, he protects. Or then you, on this side, you've got Herod, who would sell his people for a dollar if he thought it would benefit him. That's the difference. That is the difference between the two. I was looking at this passage, and I really do try to not bring politics in a church, okay? I am trying to be apolitical, but I look at this and go, this has so many political implications that I can't ignore it. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. Richard Foster in his book, Money, Sex, and Power, says nothing touches us more profoundly for good or ill than power. It can destroy or it can create. And he goes on <clears throat> to say that, that power and pride together is a volatile mix, which is what we see in Herod. It's a volatile mix. Then he goes on to say that you take pride and power and you mix in religion, and it's diabolical. Why is it diabolical? Because when you think God is on your side, all bets are off. You can do anything you want. It doesn't matter. If that's the goal, we do it, regardless of what it takes to get there, because God's on our side. We're doing this for God. That's diabolical. That's why it's so, so dangerous. So this story, to me, carries a lot of weight. Um, as we approach another presidential election, which I am totally dreading, um, this is about as political as it can get. And what he's saying is, beware of the leaven of Herod. Beware of the leaven of Herod. This thirst for power, whether it comes from the right or whether it comes from the left. This is what we got to be aware of. Beware of. Watch out. Now, we are fortunate enough to live in a democracy. Vote. Vote. I, I think I missed one election voting, one presidential election. And that was because Sue voted because we were in Mexico and she got her ballot and everything. My got my absentee ballot after the election. Really? <laughs> 
did not do me a lot of good. So I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying beware. Beware of the leaven of the Herod. Beware of this thirst for power, whether it comes from the right or whether it comes from the left. Think about the Lord's Prayer, the kingdom prayer. There's no debt, there's no hunger, there's forgiveness, there's peace in that prayer. That's what the king looks like. And I know that we would like to say, look at that and go, look at Jesus and go, boy, wouldn't that be great to have a Christian Herod? No. No. Christ is the alternative to Herod. Not a version of him. He is the complete antithesis of Herod. And that's where we got to, that's where we got to camp on. That God has decided that he is doing kingdom work through the church, through us. He has decided that it's going to be a different way. There are a lot of people who wanted to make Jesus a Christian Herod. Satan wanted him to do that. And Jesus said, no, we're going to do things differently. We're going to do it a different way. We're going to do it with changed people. Now, I want to be clear here. We are not going to build the kingdom. That is God's job. Our job is to work for the kingdom. We are simply to be the church. He will work through us. We are to be his bearers, his image bearers, and reflect his rule through us. That means we imitate him. We do the same kind of things that he does. We're not going to walk on water. I, you know, I'm not saying that will never happen, but chances are we're not going to walk on water. We're not going to multiply a few loaves of bread. Probably not. But we do the kinds of things that he does. Like feed. Like protect. Like love. Like forgive. Like show compassion. Those are the kinds of things that Jesus works for. That's how we work for the kingdom. We do the same things. In the year 112, I think around that way, there was a um, governor named Pliny who was trying to submit to Caesar and trying to, trying to do his own Herod thing, of, of brush up on, the, on Caesar's good side. And he was worried about this new sect that was starting to move around. It was starting to grow a little bit. Called these, these people called them followers of Jesus Christ. And so he wanted to know what happened. And what's, what about this? Where is this happening? Where is this going on? And, and so he, he arrested two female slaves who were also had the title of deacon in their church. He arrested them and he tortured them to try to get information about this, this sect of Christians, these people who follow Christ. And the reason they were arrested is because they used the phrase, Jesus is Lord. So if Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar's not. And so they, he arrested them trying to get information and he tortured them until they finally died. But it all came about because they said, Jesus is Lord. And I think we need to ask ourselves, what is, how do we, how do we, be careful with the leaven of Herod. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord today as we approach this season especially? And it, all the time, but it's kind of on my mind at, you know, in this coming season. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord today? 
For one, it means that the redemptive work of God is larger than any political movement, party, or candidate. That is what we're here for. Again, vote. I don't care who you vote for. Just don't fall for the leaven. Just don't fall for the yeast that infects us. The redemptive work of God is larger than any political movement, than any party, than any candidate. That always comes first. Always, always. The saving work of God is about healing our relationship with God and as a consequence, our relationship with others. That's what the work is all about. That's what the saving work of God is all about, is, re is reconciling us to God and by consequence, our relationship with others. I mean, if you're on the left, that means we love those Trumpsters. And if you're on the right, that means we love those liberal Democrats. That's what it's about. We don't have a choice here. The work, of God, the work that is done in and through the body of Christ is both the instrument of God's healing work and the expression of God's healing work. And what I mean by that is God uses us to heal, but also when people look on us, they, ushered, they should be able to see that, see that clearly. Ultimately, our work can only be fully realized by God and through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Ultimately, that's the only way. It's through God, by God, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So we beware of the leaven of God. Our task is simply to be the church. That's our task. That's, that's what we're here for. And it can be counterculture. We are counterculture. And I, I hear a lot that the church is under siege, is under siege, and it's probably from people who've never been in another country who where the church really is under siege. But we talk about we're under siege, we're being persecuted. Uh, maybe, and maybe it's going to get worse, I don't know. But let's be under siege for the right things. That we're under siege because we're doing the work of God. And that just doesn't fit well. If we want to try to be the dominant culture, then it will be corrupt. All you have to do is look at history. It always ends in corruption. Starting with Constantine in the year 330. All the way through. Every time the church tries to gain power, dominant culture, and control everything, it gets corrupted. That's what the temptation was to Jesus was all about. He's saying, no, we're going to do it different. We're going to do it in a different way. That's the distinction. That's between Jesus, the difference between Jesus and Herod. So, we decide, do we want to pick up a cross or a sword? Can't do both. Do we want to glorify Jesus or do we want to glorify ourselves? Can't do both. Can't do both. The, the leaven of Herod is this thirst for power. And Jesus says, watch out. Be careful. Be aware of that. Do it a different way. We're doing it a different way. That's the reason I had Jenny read that passage in Isaiah. Because God said, I will be the shepherd for the sheep. And of course, the person who did that is the anointed one of God, the second person of the Trinity, the embodiment of God himself, Jesus Christ. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. We follow him. And I think it's wonderful that the story that follows this is um, 
the story of breaking the bread because that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to invite you to participate. We're going to come to the table and participate in the body of Christ by taking communion this morning. So we are, we are doing it in tinction. First Sunday of every month, we do it by intention, and we ask you to, um, to come up, take a piece of bread, and you can dip it in the cup. And uh, if you're unable to come up, just let us know. We can get the bread to you, bread and cup to you, and uh, make sure everybody has an opportunity. So I'm going to pray for this. I'm going to read the passage out of Paul's description of the Lord's Supper, and then I'm going to invite you to come to um, celebrate communion with us. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink, eat the bread and drink from the cup, you proclaim the Jesus' death until he comes again. So this thing we were going to do this morning, this communion we're going to do, looks backwards at the cross, but it looks forward to him returning again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these stories that are just so ancient but so relevant because human nature doesn't really change all that much. And so, Father, we take communion this morning to remember what you've done for us on the cross, that you have redeemed us, you have saved us, you have cleansed us. And now we want to be not just your disciples, not just your students, but we also want to be your apostles, the ones sent, the ones sent to share your love and grace with others. So, Father, we take this communion in faith and take these symbols as a remembrance of your sacrifice, and we look forward to the time when you will fulfill the kingdom and return to us. And it's in the name of the Savior we pray. Amen. Yes, John and Carolyn and, and uh, Bob and Karen, if you'll come on up.